Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Hello, hello to all of you from wherever you're listening from. For those of you who complain I don't release enough podcasts, here is another one, a bonus one this week. I (laughs) had to wait a long time to come up with this interview and get our guest onto the show. So I'm so excited to be presenting to you today. And I didn't want to wait another day to release this to you. This episode is also a great opportunity for people who need a break from the LGBTQ series. I know it's been getting very heated and it's been a lot for people to process. And here is something else to focus on and listen to and maybe think about supporting and helping people in need while you get ready and prepare for Pesach yourself. One thing I forgot to mention as our partner, so we will be mentioning her again today, Jane Havens. Dreaming about staying at home with your kids and making money on the side? Become a sleep consultant. Sign up to get the free guide to walk you through the steps to become a certified pediatric sleep consultant. And if you sign up for the course, you can use Francisca 200 to get $200 off your course. Link is in the show notes. We have so many episodes in the queue waiting to be released for you. However, I am thinking ahead and I would like to put this out there. I would love to have someone on the show talk about caring for an elderly parent or two elderly parents and talk about that experience. You can obviously remain anonymous if you'd like. So if you're interested in sharing your story and talking about the struggles, the difficulties and the beautiful parts of it, please do reach out. I'd love to feature you on the show. And of course, If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, you may not know that I, Francisca, am a podcast launch coach and I help people launch their podcasts. So if you or anyone you know is looking for my kind of services, you know how to find me. If you don't know how to access the show notes, please do reach out to me, franciscak at gmail.com and I will show you how to get into the WhatsApp group to participate in the discussions. I will show you how you can access all the links. And I think we're done with all our announcements. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have uh, someone very special and somebody who is a true hero. Welcome to the show, Ellie Beer, founder of United Hatsala. So great to have you. Great to be in your show. For many, many, we wanted to do this a long time ago, but unfortunately in this situation, I'm, I'm on your show. Well, it's so great to have you finally. For anyone who isn't familiar with your work, with your organization, can you fill us in on what you do and how you got started and how you 
are one of the most successful fundraisers that I ever met. I, uh, I, I'll tell you what I do because this is my life's mission. And more importantly than anything, I, I make sure to save people every day and saving their lives in, in a physical way, meaning people who are about to leave this world, getting there on time to an emergency makes a difference. So I actually started uh, United Hatsala, which is a volunteer organization that has over 6,500 volunteers who are paramedics, EMTs, nurses, doctors, who, who are doing their day-to-day thing and get alerted if some, someone nearby them is in danger. Someone is, God forbid, choking or heart attack or car accident or any bad thing happening to them. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. Our volunteers, it takes about a minute to three minutes to arrive. So it makes a big difference when it comes to, to, to not only saving the person's life, but also the quality of life. So we, we respond to about 2,000 emergencies every day. Volunteers of ours drive motorcycles, which are called ambicycles. You see them all over. Um, they're primarily in Israel, but we have them in other places as well, and we'll talk about it. And uh, we, we get there. In some cities, the average response time is 90 seconds. Uh, so if someone calls, uh, someone's not breathing, within 90 seconds, we will be there and start resuscitating them. And we will do everything, everything we could to save these people's lives. And we, we, we are volunteers. We don't get any pay for that. We do, we do it as goodwill. We want to help people. And uh, it started as this little dream of mine when I was a little kid. I, uh, I, I, I experienced a really bad uh, situation when I was a child. I grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, you don't know this neighborhood. Maybe you do because you had relatives in the neighborhood. You did in Bait Vagan. I don't know if you know that neighborhood. Yes, I do. I have lots of cousins there. I know. Goldschmidt's everywhere. We had a very bad bomb attack in Jerusalem in my neighborhood. And when I grew up, I remember seeing what I saw with the bus blowing up and so many people killed and injured. And I, and it haunted me what I saw actually seeing an old man laying on the, on the floor and next to him, a little child. And the man was screaming for help. And I couldn't help him. I was just six years old. And... Um, all I wanted to do is go home, be, uh, be at home. I didn't know what a bomb attack was. I didn't understand what it was. But for years, I was thinking if I knew what to do, maybe I saved them. I don't know what happened to them if they survived. But all I cared about is saving people. And then when I was 15 years old, I went to volunteer in an ambulance. And I, and I loved it. I learned how to save people. And I, and I was sure once I'm in the back of an ambulance, I will save that person. And we got the patients who needed us. And they really were desperate to, to, to breathe. And by the time we got there, average, average response time was 17 minutes then. We couldn't save anyone. But we helped many people that were able to wait for us, but people who couldn't wait for us, people who were not in the situation that they could breathe on their own. By the time the ambulance arrived, because of the traffic and the distance, we couldn't get there fast enough. And they did not survive. And then what changed my life was an incident with a seven-year-old boy who was having lunch and uh, his mother gave him um, a hot dog and he just was eating and also she turns around and he's completely blue and she's trying to help him and he can't breathe and she calls for an ambulance and I was in the back of the ambulance when we received that emergency call to respond to and the driver was driving really, really quick trying to save his kid and by the time we got there, it was 21 minutes after. We were the first ones to start CPR on a child, seven years old and 
uh, 21 minutes, the kid was laying there completely blue and cold and not breathing and no pulse, no heartbeat. And all of a sudden, when we started doing CPR, we were crying ourselves. We see a doctor runs into the house. He says he's an emergency room doctor, and he came to help us. And after about 35, 40 minutes of work on this child, the doctor says nothing else we could do, just bring a sheet to cover him. And that was the worst moment of my life. But that's when I really realized that the ones who can make a difference are not ambulances. The ones who can make a difference are these doctors who are everywhere. They're home. They're feeding their kids while other kids are choking. And they could be there faster than an ambulance. So why don't I start a, why don't I create a network of volunteers who will respond to emergencies before ambulances? And I went over to my friends. I said, you know, we volunteer in the ambulance. Why don't we volunteer before the ambulance? Why don't we create something that will be much more effective by coming right before the ambulance um, um, is called. I actually, my friends love the idea and they actually said, we're in and we want to want to volunteer here. And we, and I went over the ambulance organization. I said, let's, let's start this organization to respond to emergency before you, you guys show up, just share the information with us. Someone needs our help. And they didn't like the idea. They thought it was crazy. They never heard of anything like that. They said, if someone needs help, you must get an ambulance and, very quick, I was out of their office. They didn't want to hear about it, so I decided to create it on my own. The problem was I had no way of getting the information about someone choking or in a heart attack. So they get the 911 comes to them, and how do they share with us? They wouldn't do it, so I decided to use Israel's best innovation ever. You probably heard of it. Uh, it's called chutzpah. <laughs> you heard of chutzpah, right? We created that. You can look it up in the dictionary. You intercepted the radio. Exactly. We bought police scanners. You're too young to remember, but they used to have a, a chain of stores. That was my favorite stores in the United States. Radio, radio Shack. Shack. God bless their memory, <laughs> their souls. They, they were amazing. And I used to shop there all the time as a child and buy CB radios, like scanners. And I, and I bought two of them for my bar mitzvah money. And I started an underground interception center. And every emergency they send out, we heard about it because we were listening and we started responding to these calls. And how old were you when you and started? 16 and a half years old. Incredible. So yeah. talk to us. And I know you've done incredible things and you're extremely well known. And hopefully people who are listening have heard of the organization at some point. I'd like to know, how do you choose which disasters which crises you go and help out when it comes to outside of Israel, your interception radio radius. And where have you been? Could you tell us where have you been? We are focused in Israel, where Israel has so many people don't realize, besides for bomb attacks and wars that we do have once in a while, just two days ago, we had a terrible attack in, in Beersheba where people were killed. And we have... A lot of events or security events that we have to deal with immediately. You can't wait for a second when someone's bleeding. If you stop their bleeding, you, you save them. We deal with a lot of emergencies that are not related. We have a lot of babies born every day on the roads, ladies who are giving birth on the, in their cars on the way to the hospital, and they don't get there on time. We end up saving many people. We treat so many people and we save people. But then we have a responsibility as Israelis, as Jews, to be... Um, Tikkun Olam, to do Tikkun Olam, Kiddush Hashem. And 
every time they have a disaster in the world, we, we evaluate, we have a team ready. I mean, teams ready all over Israel to go with backpack and leave their home, not only to an emergency nearby, but also overseas. We've been to many events around the world. If Haiti was one of the worst ones, you know, of course, you, everyone remembers the disaster that happened in Haiti, but and so many people killed. But a lot of people needed basic medical help for not not because they were injured, but because they having a heart attack or a lady's giving birth. Ladies couldn't go to hospitals. So we were delivering babies in Haiti, and we were we're medical people. We're all medical people. We're not, you know, we're not there to you know, dig into the buildings that collapsed where we're there to save people that needed medical help and attention. And then we have a psychotrauma unit that is ex their expertise is dealing with people who saw trauma and they are emotionally affected. So we could help them and heal, cope with it and prevent, you know, many damages like post-traumatic stress that they could have developed. So we have a whole team of psychotrauma units and medical people and we sent them overseas to many events. Japan, even we, we sent a team from Japan when they had that terrible, you know, with the nuclear facility that they had, which affected so many people. It was very dangerous. We had a small team that went there. Uh, even Surfside, when Surfside building collapsed, our volunteers were on the plane within a few hours on the way to Miami to help with this psychotrauma event. They have incredible uh, medical people in Miami, but they didn't have the expertise we have in this psycho trauma prevention that we can help. How do you deal with the language barrier, Japan or Haiti, or when it comes to now Ukraine? Well, so that's interesting. It's a great question. You know, I'll tell you the answer. You know, I have a, a few people who cannot hear, deaf volunteers, who have, they have zero hearing. And they, we're the only first, organ, I mean, the first organization that actually recruited deaf EMTs into the services. I didn't hear of anyone else. Maybe now there is, but many years ago we did. And I remember the first interview we had with a nice young lady who wanted to join us and she couldn't hear anything. And she came and she speaks, you know, the sign language. And, and when we had, we had a hard time dealing with her because we didn't understand her, but she had someone who came with her and explained. So one of the questions we asked her, how would you, how would you, um, save someone and treat someone if, if you can't speak the language. They don't understand you. You don't understand them. You can hear them. So she asked me back questions, like the Jewish question. You always ask, you answer with a question, right? Yeah. So she asked us the question, how do you treat an Ethiopian who came from Ethiopia? You don't speak their language. They're having a heart attack. So how do you treat them? You don't speak the language. And that after she asked that question, we knew the answer already because when it comes to saving someone's life, you try Improvising, you, you do your best, body language. Someone says, I'm choking, he does this. You know, he's choking. You don't have to ask him what he was suffering from. Someone's having a heart attack, he puts his hands here. Stomachache, someone's not feeling well, you could actually read someone. Not, not, you can't be 100% in everything, but we go to Haiti, we go to these places, we don't speak the language, we realize what the people are suffering and we can help them. And, and the truth is, in these countries, a lot of it is hugging people. A medical person, you see someone coming in from Ukraine now, like what's happening now. We don't speak Russian, Ukrainian. We, we we just give them a nice good feeling. They're coming out of the border and we see, are they okay? Give them a nice hug, give them something to drink, something hot to drink, uh, something to eat. And then you see something's wrong with these people. You see the color's not good. And you don't 
you can't speak the language, but then you, you say, could I check your blood pressure? And you check the blood pressure, and all of a sudden you check the sugar level, and you see they have almost di the diabetic, and they didn't take their medicines, or they didn't eat or drink enough, and you could save their life that way. And that's what we're doing without knowing the language. So let me ask you this. I haven't been covering the Ukrainian-Russian story at all on the podcast for many different reasons, but can you... <laughs> give us and describe what's going on and what you saw and what your people were dealing with on the ground. Look, I saw many events in my lifetime. I saw terrible events in Israel, like our Obama, the bar Obama attack and a war in the, in the Mehron tragedy where 45 people mm -hmm. were killed. Everything was every single one of them. I will never forget the rest of my life, but I think this is one of the worst tragedies of the last 50 years or maybe 70 years. It's not as worse as my uncles suffered in Europe, of course, it's, you can't compare it, but it's a tragedy that the world are just looking on television and watching. And I said to myself, when I saw it starting, I said, we as United Atzala, we have a responsibility to help people. And this is one of the worst human tragedies of, the, of, of our days, of our lifetimes. And, I've seen people coming into the border and I hear the crying of the babies from, you see them crossing from Ukraine through about a kilometer that they have to walk to Moldova, for instance. And you hear the crying of the babies when they say goodbye to their fathers who cannot leave. And the, the, the mother takes the two or three babies, kids they have, and they take a little bag and that's all they have. They pack up this little bag and they cross through the border and you see that. And it reminds me the stories I heard from my father, what happened in Europe. And my father was very involved with raising money to save Jewish people in the Holocaust. Now, I don't compare this to the Holocaust because nothing can be compared to the Holocaust. But this is a tragedy that millions of people are suffering from. And Jews are suffering a lot because this is not the first time. I saw an old man, 90 years old. His name is Mikhail. Masha, Misha. crossing the border. I didn't know Misha. I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. I saw a man. He was looked like he's collapsing. I went to, to to catch him before he falls. And this man was was on on the road for two and a half days. He's a ninety year old man. I didn't know who he is, what he is, and I didn't speak the language. And I had a suspicion he's maybe Jewish because he looked a little. I have a. I'm Jewish, so I know how to recognize another Jew more or less. The Judar. I have a Judar, yeah. And I actually went over and I was hugging him and I didn't know who he was. He, and he was talking and talking in Russian the whole time and crying and crying and crying. And I'm wearing the Israeli flag and I'm wearing the Hasela jacket and everything. And he's just crying and crying. And I'm trying to say, and then I said to him, I turned, I, 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 I bent down to him and I said to him, ich bin, I, I don't know Yiddish, but I know a little. So I said, ich bin von... Uh, Eretz Yisrael, in Yiddish, you know, like in a Yiddish. And I say, Eretz Yisrael. And I see him, like, look at me. And he says, Eretz Yisrael. Like, he starts copying what I just said in the, in the, in the Yiddish. And I just realize I'm talking to a nine-year-old Jew. And he's most probably a Holocaust survivor. And, uh, and I didn't know for sure, but I was suspecting this is a Holocaust survivor running again, 2022. Ended up, we fed him. We took care of him. We brought him to the Jewish community of uh, Kishinev in the community, we were feeding him. He was crying the whole time. 
and I had a guy, a volunteer that speaks Ukrainian, talking to him, ended up that this man, this is his second time running from, from tragedy. And he was saying how we were feeding him. And he said his mother, he remembers his mother feeding him dry bread. And she would dip it in in water or, or milk to, to make it tasty for him. And that's what he, he remembers as a child. And he says, I can't do this again. I, I'm done. I'm, he, he was like, it's just, he, wants, he doesn't want to continue living. And I promised him there, I'm going to protect him. And I'm going to make sure he's good and he has food and he's going to be protected. And he's never going to run again because he's coming to Israel. And I, I, I right away told my guys, we're going to get planes to fly these people to Israel. These people are going through such a tragedy. Running, everyone who runs out of their home is a tragedy. I don't care what it is, who it is. It's a tragedy for everyone. We saw it in Syria. We saw it in other places. People just leaving their homes. They're never going to see their homes again. They're leaving with, they build a property. They build the business. They build everything. And all of a sudden, they're running away. And this person ran away the second time. And he, this Misha, made me decide that United Hatzalah will save as much people as we could in this, in this catastrophe. And now... Misha is in Israel. He's in Yerushalayim in a hotel that the Jewish agency put him in and the Sochnut put him in and he's there and he's Ole Chadash in Israel. This guy was never in Israel. Misha told, he was so scared to fly on a plane that we need a psychologist to talk to him who speaks Russian because he, he thought he, the crane, the crane, he was so scared of going on a plane. He was crying, I don't want to go on a plane. I want to go only in a helicopter. I don't know why he thought a helicopter is better. But he never flew on a plane. He didn't even have a passport. And we got the ambassador, who was an incredible um, man, ambassador who was an ambassador in Ukraine now. He's ambassador of Moldova. He was working around um, the clock to help. And he came and he gave him a paper to go to Israel with no passport. And that's what we're dealing with. And then dealing with medical situations with people injured, the civilians coming in injured. Some, one person is miss, missing a leg. We're flying him into Israel tomorrow with the Jewish agency who gave us a list of people that can go and they need a doctor to be with them. We're bringing a special plane of Elal that's going to turn into an ambulance. The whole plane is going to be sick people and people injured. And this is situations that I never in my life thought I'm going to deal with in 2022 when you have internet, when you have everything is live. It's not like 1939. These are millions of people. How are you deciding where to go and who to help and who gets to go to Israel, who gets to go to, like, who goes where? What's happening? Well, we're helping everyone that's needing. You know, I don't care who's Jewish or who's not. I'm, I'm a Jew, and I'm standing there proudly as a Jew with my yarmulke. It's freezing. It's cold, and I'm standing there waiting for people, and whenever someone comes and needs help, and we're helping schlepping their stuff. I'm a medic for many years. I'm used to saving people on CPR, but also seeing someone and giving them a hug when they walk into a strange country and give, taking their luggage from them and helping them to the bus is a mitzvah. And I'm giving a little teddy bear to their little baby. The one woman said to me, she was crying. She said to me, this is the first smile I see on my son. Three-year-old son got a teddy bear for me. And, and we brought a bunch of teddy bears from Israel. And this kid was the first smile that he had on his face for days. And he was just happy for a second, you know? He got a teddy bear. What did it cost me to give him a teddy bear? Nothing. And I made a kid happy that he knows that 
he has a little hope. So these people are suffering a lot because their life is going to change. Who knows what's going to be with them? Now, a lot of them are, are Jewish and they want to come to Israel. Some of them don't want to go to Israel. We don't want to take anyone to Israel. And that Israel can't take everyone, of course, because we're a small country. We have 9 million people. We can't take 2 million refugees. They have European countries around us. So we're, Israel has already 60 or 70,000 refugees. And we're going to end up having 200,000 refugees probably. But not all of them are Jewish. We have a lot of non-Jewish people. We, we go by the law of uh, return of Israel. So anyone who says his mother, grandmother, grandfather was Jewish, we, we actually help them get to Israel. But some of them come to Israel and there are just people who want to be there for a while until things relax and they go back to their country. You mentioned round the clock. You're also round the clock. I've been in touch with you for over the last two weeks to get you onto this podcast. And you're always on a plane or in some different country. When do you sleep and how do you, how do you handle just living in an emergency state? Literally. Well, you know what? Getting you. Getting used to being a volunteer at Vatsala, you don't sleep a lot because you could be waking up any time of the day or night. I mean, if you're taking a nap in the afternoon on Shabbat, you get, an, you get a call, it's, it's over. You get a call at three o'clock in the morning that your neighbor is, is not feeling well, it's, your sleep is over. I'm used to sleeping very little. I don't know, somehow God gave me the strength to, to deal with this. And it's a gift. I don't sleep a lot. I'm full of energy. I'm not young anymore like I used to. I went through a lot in the last few years, but I'm still sleeping very little. So on the plane, I, I'm on the plane. You know, the funny joke I always say, and I, I, I say this a lot, that my kids, they never see me. So they actually see me on WhatsApp, on videos from the plane more than they see me in live. So my, my kids are used to seeing me up in the sky. So they call me Avinu Shabashamayim, our father up in heaven. It's a prayer, you know, you say so. So actually, my kids don't see me a lot. They see me on the plane. I'm, I was on the plane this week four times, five times this week alone. And I'm on, I just travel 15 hours on the plane. So that's my life. And I know that every time I go on the plane, first of all, I may save someone on the plane, which happened to me many times, physically saving someone. And um, the planes are the place I relax more than every, anything else. So I love flying because I, I'm not bothered by phone calls. And then when, once I land, I start having phone calls and it's great to help people. And I'm privileged. You know what? I am so lucky to be on the side of giving. I am so lucky. And I think anyone who gives, anyone who's involved with something and helping and anyone who's donating or anyone who's giving is the luckiest person in the world. Well, I was just discussing the fact that I'm having you on the podcast and someone said, you know, ask him about his family balance life. I said, there, I don't think there is any balance over there. I think it's pure sacrifice. And then I said, because it's a man, it's, it's like anytime a man is involved in the household duties or activities, it's like, wow, you're so lucky you have a husband who's present at home. But since you, since this, this did come up today, I would like to address, you know, what is it like for your wife, for your children? I'll tell you, I, I don't know if I ever, I don't know if you know this, but I, I was married before I married my wife, Kitty. I was married to United Hatella before I married her. So she knew she comes second. <laughs> she married me when I was married already to United Hatella. Mm -hmm. So 
she actually knew what she's coming into. She can't complain. <laughs> so she, we got married when we were 19. She was 18. And she was my next door neighbor. And we had an incredible relationship. But, you know, grew up religious. And we didn't have a real close relationship. But we knew each other. We were neighbors. So she saw me in ambulances driving day and night in ambulances. It's 16, 17, 18, 19, right? So when she joined in, my kids used to see me run out to emergencies all the time. My kids saw me go out on Pesach to bomb attack in Netanya and not coming back till the next day during Pesach, Passover or Seder. And they saw me, my kids grew up with a father who could be called out any time. And they knew that if I disappear, it's for a good reason. I don't go to smoke cigarettes with my friends. I don't go to play poker with my friends. I go to save someone. So my kids actually looked at me and they admired me very, very much. And not only that it didn't affect them, they actually were, they really were turned into it. And all my children are now volunteers of United Atella. Not only that, I just say that I have five beautiful kids that I love very much. Three of them are EMTs and responding. One of them is becoming a nurse soon, Abigail, my oldest. She met her husband, Abigail, while she was trying to save a child who was hit by a car. He was also a volunteer of ours, actually trained in Ukraine. We have a Ukraine United Hatzala. So he was trained in Ukraine and moved to Israel. And my daughter was doing CPR with him on a child who did not survive, but they ended up dating because he felt bad for her because she was crying. He offered her coffee. That coffee was very dangerous because ended up she dated him more and got married to him. He's a wonderful young man, our own. My other daughter married a United Hatzalah volunteer to Uri, who's in Ukraine now helping. And my, my third daughter is um, actually the only one who didn't marry Hatzalah volunteer, but he's jealous. He wants to be one. And my wife, Kitty, is a volunteer of United Hatzalah for the last 10 years. And she was always jealous of me leaving the house, leaving her with a guest and dishes and running out to save someone on Shabbat dinner. So she was stuck with the guest and the dishes and I went to save someone. So now she runs out and leaves me with the dishes if I'm ever home. And we have an incredible life because everyone is so happy. Because every day we sit down and around the table and everyone tells a story. Oh, I treated this. My daughter always delivers babies everywhere. And it's just incredible. We have a, you know, a house of chesed. What could be better? I know you have been personally affected by COVID and you almost lost your life. How has that affected you, your purpose? I, I can't imagine anything amplifying your life's mission and purpose, but has COVID affected you in any way? Well, first of all, being in the, in the other side of the you know, equation, you know, I, I was always the side of giving and helping and and saving people, all of a sudden I'm on the side wearing a, an apron, a, a, like a robe in a bed, in a bed. And the doctor comes over to me and he says, I have to put you on a coma. I have to induce you into coma and put you on a ventilator because your situation is really critical. And I'm like saying, oh, you know, this is what I used to do to save people. Like this is now, now I'm on the other side and I'm like, I, I, I'm not finished my job. I still have work to do here in this world. Why am I? you know, what's happening? And I asked the doctor, what's my chances of survival? And he said, 5% chance. So I saying, oh boy, like, okay, I have to prepare to say goodbye to my kids. I have to prepare to say goodbye to my wife, my, my friends. 
I didn't have time. The doctor says every minute your oxygen level is going down. You're not breathing well. And you might die if you don't go on a ventilator. And he was right. My situation was really bad. I had the best doctors in the world in the University of Miami. I was traveling there for fundraising. You see what a bad fundraiser I am? I get COVID while I'm fundraising. And this was this is like in the beginning of the whole COVID situation. And um, I couldn't believe I'm getting, I'm dying. And I, I, I had to say goodbye to everyone. My kids were crying. It was Shabbat dinner in Israel. And I was in Miami. They couldn't visit me. And I said, I'm going to die all alone here. And then I sent out a video to all the people I know. I said to uh, my, my friends, please continue supporting United Atzala, even if I don't survive this. First of all, pray for me and do good deeds for me. And support organizations, do good. That's the only way to save this world. Is the world looked like it's over. I actually thought the world's going to finish. Like, we're not going to have a continuation. Like, this is the Mabul. You know, this is it. So I actually beg people to, if I, if I don't survive this, please continue supporting. Because I used to go asking people for money. And I said, I need another defibrillator. I need another ambulance. I need a motorcycle. And people said, oh, I'm sick and tired of you. And I thought, if I die, I was going to make a big party. Ellie Beer is done. He's not coming back to us. Not going to knock on our door. Ask us for more money. So I asked them in, the, in, in advance, if I don't come back to you, you better support us. Or else I'm going to hunt you from up there. And thank God, a month later, I woke up. And it was the best feeling in the world to wake up and to see I'm still alive because I didn't believe I'll ever come back. But it was a very hard waking up. It was very, very hard. And I went through some very difficult days of illusions. And I thought I was kidnapped in the beginning. For a few days, I didn't even know if I'll ever come back to myself. It's incredible. Well, we're so happy to have you back. These kind of things are happening to the world because people are too selfish. People only think about themselves. And I think if the world, like people should be rich, people should make a lot of money, but should always remember the part of the world that they have to take care of. You have a responsibility if you have money in this world, or even if you don't have money in this world, to, to, to keep this world a better place, every single person of us. And I was worried that this bad situation we have with COVID and so many people were dying then because we're not behaving like we're supposed to. And we should care about the world. And look what happened in China. It started in China. We all know that. Yeah. I don't know if I, after saying this, I'll be invited to China again. But it started there. And I think if people cared more and about the environment and other things, and this world would be a would not have all these kind of things. And and I think giving charity and giving doing good in the world protects this world. And that's what I, I actually believe in. And I and I. And it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or non-Jewish or Arab. Or Muslim. I have a lot of Muslim volunteers. You know that I have a lot of Arab volunteers in the United States. You don't see many organizations where I don't think I don't think you see any organizations that you have ultra, ultra, ultra religious people, Haredi people, Satmar Hasidim, or or settlers from from the mountains of uh, the Shamron, together with secular Jews who are totally left, maybe, and and don't eat kosher together with an Arab who's Muslim and prays five times a day in one organization and they respect each other so much and they learn to know each other so much and they do together everything possible to save each other's life. There are two more things I wanted to talk about, but I don't know if it's appropriate. I, you must be so tired, but I'll bring I'm, it up. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You, I cannot say no to you. You know that. 
Okay. Well, one thing is, have you heard anyone say, you know, if you care about the Ukrainians, but you didn't do anything about, you know, Afghanistan or Syria or Libya, then you're racist because you're only caring about white refugees. And I sort of implied that when I asked, how do you choose which disasters you go help? That can be post implied. But do you have anything to comment on that? I personally think the human being is a human being and anywhere we could go to help, we would go. I mean, we offered help to Iran. Israel also offered. We, United Hotel, we sent an email to the government of Iran. I think it was the Ministry of Health. We found their email and we offered United Hotel when they had a big earthquake in Iran and many people who died. We actually offered help to send United Hotel volunteers there. Of course, we did not get an answer. But we offer, we, we don't care if you're Jewish or not Jewish. We don't care. And I don't think Israel cares. Israel really is a good example that even enemies of our country, when they need help, we will go help them. Israel offered Iran help with COVID. And of course, Iran would never take help from Israel or America then. And I think this is not true to say that we would help only black and that's syrians we helped so much if people remember what israel did for syrians even united Hotel, a small organization helped syrians that were coming is into israel to get help many of them were undercover when they were getting help because they didn't want anyone to know in syria that they got help from israel but they came in thousands of syrians got help from israel and israel's an enemy to syria right you know we have no nothing in common but when they were in trouble because they had terrorism going on in Syria and the and the government of, of Syria were terrorizing and killing people one one after another they were killing and murdering people Assad and his friends we were helping Syrians more than more than any other Arab country so I think whoever says that doesn't know what he's talking about because we will help. We will go to any country. We went into well, Haiti. I wasn't I don't know attacking you personally. I was attacking No, I know. Anyone who says that, not you. I, I, you are, <laughs> you're on our side. Yeah. But people who say that, oh, you're helping only white people. That is not true. We're helping anyone. We have more access to help in Ukraine than we have access to help in other countries. Like if Sudan has a problem, we have a problem to go in there. It's not going to be easy for us. But here, we go to Moldova. We go to uh, Poland. We go to any other country. Uh, Hungary. Slovakia, we go and we go even in, and we help anyone. We have a lot of people from Russia who are coming to Israel now because they need help. We are helping anyone. Don't forget, a million Russians came in from Israel, from Russia to Israel, and they were accepted in Israel as a leader We will help any Jew in the world, no matter where they're from, and any non-Jew that wants our help. So the last thing I wanted to address was the Russians right now, the politically incorrect people to feel bad for or want to help. But they are also in a disastrous place right now. A lot of them can't get access to their medications because all the Western medical supply has been cut off. And the same with everything else that's coming in from outside of Russia, from the West. Is there anything to do? I mean, I'm going to be putting up a link soon to fundraise help make Pesach? Any, any words, anything you could think of? I, I 100% agree with you. And I think, I think that the people are suffering. The people are suffering in Russia. And they're going to suffer a lot more soon because the people did not choose the war. And I know that most of the people in Russia, just this was something that was forced on them. To see so many people suffering, it's heartbreak. It's, it, it breaks my heart to see Russian people, I have a friend who lives in Russia, and 
He's not Jewish. And I was in contact with him. And he is devastated. He has a business that's depended upon the world being open to Russia. And his life is over. And he says, Elia, I'm going to move out of Russia and have to start my life all over again. And he's not young. He's not 20 years old. So he has to start his life all over again. He's going to have to find a way out of, get out of Russia. You can't even take out your money out of Russia. And he's going to have to start his business all over again somewhere else because he doesn't look like it doesn't look like his business is going to be. And many other people like him, people who have have jobs there are losing their jobs. So this is a situation that we have to understand. I'm not trying to be, you know, Russia. In Russia, they have a lot of good people that are suffering, and no one's talking about them. You're right, no one is talking about them. And I see them because I have a lot of friends who are Jewish who are live in Russia. And they are suffering a lot. And I, I'm, I imagine a lot of non-Jewish people. So just to see this is, breaks my heart. And um, I wish this is over. I really wish. I, I'm, I'm helping now on the borders of Ukraine because Ukraine is in a really, really disaster situation. But the next wave is not only Ukraine, it's also Russian people, which they're going to suffer too. And his friends are now suffering. But the people are now going to suffer for a long time. So it's a mitzvah, and in my opinion, to say that if you put on a link to help people for Pesach, no matter if they're in Russia, no matter if they're in Ukraine, they should go ahead. And if you're buying yourself food for Pesach, put some of that money aside to give other people food who need it. And a lot of people who had money before don't have the money now. And I see that by meeting people that I know. Yeah. It's an awful place to be comparing different horrible tragedies in people's lives. So sending love and prayers to everyone suffering right now and who needs it. Thank you so much, Ellie, for coming on the show. Sacrificing your sleep I want to say something that it's like really incredible to speak to you. And really, I want to say thank you to all the volunteers who are putting their lives. And I say, you know, talking to donors, and I spoke to big donors who give money. Let's say a donor gave $100,000. He's a billionaire and he gave $100,000. That's great. But a volunteer who takes off his job for a month now, and he's earning hardly enough money to make a living, and he takes off a month off work to go to help there, he's our biggest donor, or she's our biggest donor. And we have volunteers like that who are there now on the borders, and we have a lot of great people like other organizations. I could just say the JDC, Jewish Distribution Organization, who is there, and the Sokhnut, the you know the Jewish Agency, and the, all the federations in America where helping, and many other great organizations are there. I'm not going to mention everyone, hospitals or anything. Do everything possible to help because this is not a regular situation. We highly recommend everyone to go donate to United Atzala. We're going to link your link as well. Any final words? I would say this, support any organization, but United Atzala's website is easy, israelrescue.org. You'll see the campaign. We have israelrescue.org. And just learn more about what we're doing, and you can support that and support some life-saving there and support any link that you offer. I trust your judgment. (laughs) An important thing to mention in this time. Hatzlach on everything you do. Thank you. You too. Continue the great work you do. Thank you. Thanks for sticking around until the end. I hope this episode resonated with you and you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please, please donate to United at Sala as well as the link that I posted in the show notes to help our community in Moscow, well, one of the many communities, make Pesach. If you like this podcast, you probably will enjoy other 
podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com. So make sure to go check them out on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I am a podcast launch coach, but I also help existing podcasters grow, optimize, and monetize their podcasts. I'm so excited for next week's episode, which is our final episode for this specific series. Maybe we will extend it in the future, but for now, it's going to be the final episode. I'm so excited to release it to you next week. So keep the discussion going on the WhatsApp group. Join the group if you haven't yet. If you left, it's okay. We'll have you back when you feel ready to rejoin. And as always, thank you for providing the safe space to talk about topics that are unspoken, undiscussed, and need more awareness and education around. Thank you for joining in this mission. I hope you have a wonderful week. See you next time. Bye.